Well, we're going to enter into our study of Acts uh, today and uh, kind of pick up really where we left off last uh, when we looked at Acts 1 through uh, 8 in the spring, or 1 through 7. We'll begin in uh, chapter 8 today. And, and what I thought was interesting was as I kind of thought through this and prepared for what we're going to begin to doing, I thought, you know, when you study the book of Acts, you really find the secret to the church growth movement that everyone seems to be looking for in our world today. But unlike what we see in our world today, it's not accomplished through an entertaining worship experience. It doesn't happen because of a relevant and engaging celebrity pastor. It's not a strategic discipleship program. It's not an evangelism movement effort. Those are not the, the strategies that you see being employed in, in Scripture and in particularly in the book of Acts. Instead, the key to church growth, according to the book of Acts, is the presence of persecution. All throughout history, we see some of the greatest spiritual revival in the midst of persecution. We saw when we looked at the first several chapters in the book of Acts that, that day by day people were being added to their number. There were those who were coming to faith in Christ through the apostles' teaching. But we know at the very same time there were those who were, there was a growing opposition to those who believed. There was an increasing persecution. That opposition kind of escalated over time. It started with a warning. When they brought Peter and John and some of the other apostles in and they and told them, you must not preach in Jesus' name anymore. And what did they say? We cannot do that. We must continue to preach. And so they did. And so in order to escalate the opposition, they threw them in prison. But when they were miraculously released, they arrested them again and then beat them. But all the while, the message of the gospel continued to be heard. In fact, the persecution only served to amplify the interest in the message they were preaching. Because when someone like Stephen was willing to give his life, stoned to death, for something that he believed, it put the spotlight on their faith. As an early church father, a man by the name of Tertullian once said, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Persecution was the catalyst for the Great Commission. It spread the gospel from what began in Jerusalem to then extend into Judea, and as we'll see this morning, into Samaria, the city of outcasts. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning humbly, we ask that you do a work in our lives. We ask that you do a work in our heart. Help us to see truths that we would otherwise be blind to apart from you helping us see. Help us to hear truths that we would otherwise not listen to. Help us to hear. And Lord, as we see and as we hear, would you use these truths to shape our lives so that we live differently when we walk out of this place. Lord, please have your way in us. Lord, hear our prayer. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
turn to Acts chapter 8 and uh, begin reading with me in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Let me say before I read verse 1, these passage now refers back to the, Stephen, uh, the stoning of Stephen that has just occurred. And it says in verse 1, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him, but Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. Here we get a little bit of a snapshot of a story that is yet to unfold. We see a man by the name of Saul. We, of course, know him as the Apostle Paul. But in this scene, instead of building up the church, he's trying to tear it down. Saul was abusing his power, fueled by a prideful arrogance. His goal was simple. He wanted to destroy the Christian church. He wasn't trying to just quiet the crowds. He didn't want this thing to just kind of simmer down. He wanted to take it out. In verse 3, that word we translate as ravage literally means to destroy. Paul was out, or Saul was out to destroy the church. And he did it by taking innocent men and women and throwing them in prison. Tells us here is that he went house to house. We learn later on as the campaign progresses, he goes house to house, synagogue to synagogue, taking men and women, innocent. The only thing they're guilty of is having put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he throws them in prison to begin with, but there really are no limits to how far he's willing to go. In his own confession later in Acts chapter 26, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to what he says as a part of his testimony. Now, after having come to faith in Christ, he looks back on these days that we now find ourselves in, in our passage, and he says, So then, speaking of what we just read, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And Paul was, Saul was doing everything he could to destroy the church because he was hostile against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See, he could not accept the claims of someone he did not respect. After all, we know Saul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee trained by the most notable rabbi of the time, a, a man by the name of Gal, Gal, Gamaliel. And if Saul were to exist today, we would see his name followed by a lot of very impressive letters. He was highly accomplished, well-trained. And there was nothing about this Jesus of Nazareth that compared to Saul's accomplishments. He had none of the credentials that would give him credibility in that religious community in which Saul lived. See, Saul was not impressed with Jesus, I think probably because Jesus was not impressed with Saul. Saul refused to follow someone who did not validate his success. In the end, Saul was a bigot. 
He was a bigot because he was simply using his power to silence people who did not agree with him. And the religious leaders gave him full authority to carry out his wrath upon the church. His anger was fueled by a prideful arrogance. An abuse of power used for selfish gain. Look at how it continues in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered because of this persecution went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began to proclaim Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what he said, what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who were unclean spirits they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed and there was much rejoicing in the city now what we see here as the scene shifts is in stark contrast with what we saw with Saul instead of an abuse of power we see a divine power now being put on display unclean spirits are being cast out the the lame and the sick are being healed But this power was revealed not by prideful arrogance, but just humble obedience. God's power is revealed in a man by the name of Philip. And as you think through and look through this passage, I uh, don't believe that this is referring to the Apostle Philip as we would naturally assume. The reason is is because in verse 2 it says that the Apostles, which would include the Apostle Philip, remained in Jerusalem. Instead, I think this is Philip from Acts chapter 6, which we looked at last year. Let's look at that again, Acts chapter 6. You remember the church is continuing to grow in the context of this persecution of such size that they're having trouble meeting all the needs of all the people. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Now, you need to know here that the Hellenistic Jews were kind of second-class citizens in Jerusalem. The native Hebrews were the the full blood. The Hellenistic Jews had kind of incorporated some of that Greek culture, and so more or less they were second-class citizens because the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so the twelve summoned the congregation of disciples, that's the church, And said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that statement found approval in the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, I believe the Philip in Acts 8, Curus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and a proselyte from Antioch. You may remember when we looked at this passage, we noted that every one of those men had Greek names. That's because they're Hellenistic Jews. They are taken from the ones that have been neglected to ensure that they're not neglected any longer. That's why... Stephen is chosen. That's why Philip is chosen. Again, these are often seen as as second-class citizens. So, when those Hellenistic Jews then began to put their faith in Christ, you can understand why these native Jews, like Saul, 
then turn the persecution on them. That's all they needed to judge them for having left the true faith of the Hebrews. And so the persecution began, and people like Stephen were stoned to death, and then people like Philip were persecuted and eventually run out of town. But So what that tells us is that, that Philip ultimately is a Christian refugee who finds himself in the much despised region of Samaria. See, up until now, the, the Hellenistic Jews were tolerated, but the Samaritans... <laughs> have always been despised. They are what they call were called half-breeds. They came out of interracial marriage between Jewish people and the Assyrians with whom they stood under captivity. Jews would literally walk on the other side of the street when they saw a Samaritan coming. They would go around Samaria if they were traveling in that part of the country just to avoid those people. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritan was so incredibly shocking to the audience Jesus was speaking to. It's also why Jesus' own disciples could not understand why he was talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. But here's what I find most interesting about what's happening here. Philip previously accepted by the Jews, has now become an outcast because of his Christian faith. He flees Jerusalem and now finds himself in a community of outcasts in Samaria. His persecution is what now gives him a platform to share the gospel. He is an outcast among outcasts. And now they stand on equal ground. Notice it says that Philip is proclaiming the word and, and preaching Christ. The, the miracles that he was performing gave divine approval to the message that he was speaking. It was a message that, that God so loved the world, the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Notice it says in verse 6 that the multitudes were giving attention to what Peter said, and here's why. Peter is proclaiming a message that there are no outcasts in heaven. That to as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. And in the family of God, there is no Jew or Greek there is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There's no American, no Asian, no black, no white. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's where we see the power of God revealed through humble obedience. As a man who has been persecuted, now an outcast, speaks to a community of outcasts and says, there are no outcasts in heaven. You see, Philip didn't choose to go to Samaria, but he was willing to be used by God wherever he might be. He used his persecution as a platform to speak a message of the gospel. And as we see in verse 8, the people were rejoicing in the good news of what they heard. And I believe it's because the ones who had been despised had now been told a message of the great love that God has for them. 
Those who have been outcasts have now been invited in. And there was great rejoicing. Look at how it continues in verse 9. Now there was a, a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were, were giving attention to him, saying the man was, uh, is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because of all he had done for a long time and astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed... Philip's preaching and the good news about the kingdom of God in which they were now included in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed, and after having been baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. We have a very interesting encounter here now taking place in Samaria between Simon the refugee or excuse me, Philip the refugee and Simon the magician. The main thing we need to know about Simon is he is one popular dude. Everybody knows about Simon. From young to old, from great to small, he is renowned in this region. But not only do the people think Simon is great, Simon thinks Simon is great, right? It says that he's self-proclaimed as a great man. And when they attribute him with divine power from God, he agrees. Takes credit. Believes that they are simply affirming what he's always known to be true. He is a great person. But then Philip shows up. And now all of a sudden, Philip is the talk of town. And he's gaining more attention than Simon has. Not only that... Philip is doing things that Simon has never, ever done. Not only that, Philip is not taking credit for any of those things. <laughs> Instead of promoting himself like Simon would do, Philip is pointing to Jesus. As a result of Philip's preaching, there is what appears to be kind of a, a spiritual awakening that it begins to happen in Samaria. People are placing their faith in Christ and they're publicly demonstrating that faith by the act of baptism. And surprisingly, one of those people is Simon. But I'm not so sure that Simon's confession is sincere. It almost feels like it's the old adage, if you can't beat them, join them. I think that might be what's happening here. There are several reasons why, and one of them there is in verse 13. At the end there, it says, And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, listen, as he observed signs and great miracles taking place and was constantly amazed. Hmm. Simon wasn't enamored with the person and work of Christ. He was intrigued by the great miracles Philip was performing. He's moved by the experience I don't think his confession is sincere. Now, some of you might look at that and say, but wait a second, it says, it says that he believed. Yes, but I also think back to the parable that Jesus told, the, the parable of the seeds. And you remember there's the seed that falls on the rocky ground, and Jesus describes it this way when he explains the parable to his disciples. He says, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
but then it's only temporary because when his faith is challenged, he falls away. That's what happens with Simon. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, and as, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Before we go there, we first need to understand what the apostles are doing here in Samaria in the first place. Because it's really necessary to understand their presence in this place. You remember back before the ascension, Jesus explicitly told his apostles, including Peter and John, Be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. They were commissioned by Jesus to protect the integrity of the gospel as the church would expand. And John and, and Peter and the other apostles have been present in Jerusalem and Judea. They, they saw that was happening around there, but what is happening here in Samaria is something new. And make no mistake... When these Samaritans put their faith in Christ, it's going to create a controversy. Which is why God moves uniquely through Peter and John in order to validate their faith. The laying on of their hands to receive the Holy Spirit is not normative in Scripture, but it is necessary here to validate their confession. Some people look at what's happening here as like a, a Samaritan Pentecost. As true believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And like Pentecost, it must have been visible in some way because we know that, that in verse 18 it says that Simon saw it. And when he did, he offered money to Peter and John to give him authority to do what they were doing. And here's the key. He wanted power over the Spirit, not for the Spirit to have power over him. This is yet another reason I don't believe his confession was sincere. It also validates the reason that Peter and John were there in the first place. To validate the confessions of those who were being baptized. Simon did not receive the Holy Spirit. And look at what Peter had to say to Simon's request. Verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intention of your heart might be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of sin. Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel in many villages throughout Samaria. Well, this is a strong rebuke. We know Peter well enough 
through the Gospels to know that he doesn't uh, mince words. He basically says, to hell with you and your money. Because if you don't repent, that's where you both will end up. He tells Simon that he's caught in the bondage of sin, and we know through the testimony of Scripture that is not true of a believer in Jesus Christ. We learn from Romans that you are no longer a slave to sin, that that bondage has been broken, that you have been set free through faith in Christ alone. But Simon was enamored by the Christian experience, not the person and work of Christ. To the point that he wasn't even willing to pray. Do you see that? He's asking Peter and John to do something that he's unwilling to do for himself. So, as we think about this passage, there's a question I want you to consider. And I would ask you to write this question down. And I want you to think about it this week, okay? Just go back to this question and be honest as you consider it. Here's the question. What about the message of Christ most interests me? What is it? What about the message of Christ most interests you? And let me encourage you to think through it in this way. Are you like Simon? Are you more intrigued by a Christian experience than the person of Christ? Are, are you impressed with what the church has to offer, but not all that interested in what discipleship might require of you? Because let's be honest, there are still a lot of Simons in the church today. People who or looking for a moving experience, involved in a church that kind of fits their expectations, that's customized to their preferences, but when they're called into discipleship, they would rather see others do for them what they're unwilling to do on their own. Just like Simon. And it's important to be honest and know that you cannot be a Christian if you're not devoted to a life of discipleship. Jesus said, Paul writes, you must die to yourself, setting aside your own preferences for the good of others. The Christian faith is an abiding relationship. It is a life of discipleship, a journey of learning what it means to, to know and to follow Christ. But there's also a danger on the other extreme as well. And this is where we can navigate to becoming more like Saul where we find our security in our accomplishments. We're empowered by our perfectionism. Instead of pursuing a relationship, we follow a checklist of religious obligations, and we are quick to criticize others while overlocking, overlooking our own sin. What we really need, what we really need in the church today is a church filled with Phillips. He didn't look to God to to make his life better, even though he was in the midst of persecution. Instead, he was willing to be used by God wherever he might be, even taking the situation he was in and using it as a platform to share the hope of the gospel in the midst of it. This past week, I spent some time with a group of men that I've been meeting with now almost 30 years. We were spread from Tulsa to Dallas to Austin, and we began this pursuit several years ago with a simple commitment. We want to hit the tape running. We want to go all the way to the end until the Lord calls us home, being faithful as a husband, as a father, and as a man who's committed to a life of ministry, whatever that might be.
One of those friends is a, a guy by the name of Kyle Kagler. Met Kyle a number of years ago when he was here in Lubbock. He now serves at Watermark in Dallas as a faithful friend. And he made an interesting comment in one of our conversations that I think is profound. And I believe it's absolutely true. He said, you know, the first Reformation, the one that we know about with Martin Luther and all that happened there, said the first Reformation is what put the Bible in the hands of the people. Because we know that up until that time, God's Word, did, people did not have access to God's Word unless you were in the clergy. If you were in the clergy, you could read, you could teach, but it was not accessible to anyone else. And Martin Luther knew that's not right. And so he went through great toil in order to get the message of the gospel, to get the words of Scripture into the hands of the people in a language that they could understand so that they could grow and learn what it means to know and follow Christ. Kyle said, you know, what we need is a second reformation. Not necessarily to put the Bible in the hands of the people because I bet if we were honest, we probably have three or four per person in this room somewhere in our home. Instead, in this second reformation, we need to put ministry back into the hands of the people. Instead of paid staff and ministry leaders, it needs to become the heartbeat of every Christian across the world. Let me bring it a little closer to home. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about what it means to be a hospital for the hurting. In essence, a hospital for the hurting is a church filled with Phillips. People engaged in a life of ministry right where they are, even to the point that they're willing to use the difficulty that they may be in as a platform to share their hope in Christ and come alongside those who may be struggling in a similar way. See, this is not about impressive people doing amazing things. This is about ordinary people who speak a very powerful message of forgiveness and grace through faith in Christ alone. People like Philip, people who preach the word, people who point to Christ. You see, outside of persecution, which I promise you is not anything that anyone in this room wants to experience in our lifetime. We don't want that, okay? But apart from persecution, if we want to see a spiritual revival in the life of the church, then the ministry has to be put into the hands of the people. And I need to confess to you, forgive me if I have taken too much of that into my own hands. Because it is not my job to do the ministry of the church apart from calling the people of the church to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. It's our job. There will be a reformation when the people of God become a person like Philip, who no matter what situation they're in, is looking to see where God is at work and engages in a life of ministry right where they are. Man, if that happens, so that we don't look at certain people to do leadership ministry but that's actually being carried out in the life of the church, young and old, great and small, because you all have the same power of God at work in you, there will be something amazing that happens. And so let's just pray together as we think about what it means to be a hospital for the hurting, as we think about it, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we put some attention to what it might be like to have a second reformation when the ministry is taken from a select few who are in paid staff positions or who are given a title of ministry leader and put it into the hands of every person who claims the name of Jesus Christ and is committed to following them for the rest of their life.
Let's see what would happen if that were to happen in this church. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive me. I confess that I have not been as diligent as I need to be to look for ways to see ministry lived out in the lives of the people, whether they're on staff, whether they're leading a small group, or just finding about what it looks like in the workplace or in the home or in the neighborhood. Father, help us to be more like Philip where we are willing to be used by you no matter where we are, even if that means taking a difficult place that we're in and using it as a platform to share the hope that we have in Christ despite that difficulty. Lord, help us to live out a life of ministry. Put it back in the hands of the people. Help us to be a hospital for the hurting where every person is engaged by coming alongside others who need a helping hand. Not referring them to someone else, but stepping in, doing what you make possible because of the power at work in them. Father, we entrust that to you. We humbly come before you, and we ask that you have your way. Amen.